Welcome to The Sale Ring, a podcast dedicated to real estate brokers, agents, and America's top auctioneers that keep the markets moving. Join your hosts, Sean and Trina, as they talk with most successful realtors, marketing and technology experts, investors, and influencers. This show is devoted to all industry professionals looking to up their game and stay up to date. Welcome to The Sale Ring. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us on this episode of the podcast show, The Sale Ring. In the studio with Trina and I today, we've got Mike Branley. Mike Branley is one of the foremost authorities in the auction business, specifically around auction law. He's a longtime auctioneer and a personal friend of, of Trina and myself and the shows, and we appreciate him taking his time to join us in the studio today. Mike's the principal auctioneer and owner of Branley & Associates at a Grove Board, Ohio. He's been in the auction business almost 40 years. And Mike, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. We appreciate it. Pleasure to be here and look forward to our conversation. Well, we got a great one today. You and I have had a lot of conversations about the auction business, and Trina and I were just talking about some of the the new kind of regulations and requirements. That's a never-ending story for anybody that follows your blog or watches what you write openly on the internet in the auction arena. It's a never-ending kind of a circus out there with auction law and litigation and people finding new ways to take shots, I guess, at the auction process, but it's been a mainstay in this country for for hundreds of years and divesting things at auction is just still in my opinion one of the the most solid platforms out there to transfer property from one person to another it's a process that's used every minute of every day live online simulcast all kinds of ways people can hire interact buy sell through the auction method of marketing and as you said it's been around we think over 2,000 years on earth and right from the beginning of this country, auctions have been used continually. So are there uh, threats to our industry? Yes. Are there opportunities? Yes. We just got to keep our eyes focused forward and keep looking around for both of those things. I'll put you on the hot seat as you say that. What do you see as the biggest threat in the auction industry today that auction companies or auctioneers face and I know there's probably a number of those, but the one that, that kind of draws itself out to you today. Well, the one that's got my attention and got the attention of lots of people, I believe, is that for a lot of auctioneers, we transitioned. We used to, because there wasn't any other way to do it, grab a microphone, talk fast, get things sold, do a, a wonderful job at that. And the internet came along and it became easier to, in some cases, to, for example, take a photo, upload it to an online platform, hit the go button, and it takes off. While we've made that an easier process or we have taken advantage of that easier process, the risk, it seems to me, is that the public says, well, I can do that. I have a phone. I have internet access. Some of these platforms don't discriminate between, say, you're an auctioneer or you're just the seller. And so I think as we've made it easier for auctioneers to sell things at auction, we've maybe crossed a threshold where some, not all, but some sellers and particularly young tech-savvy sellers say, can I um, do this myself? One of our main sponsors in here is United Country Real Estate, and we've had this conversation multiple times about the transition that we're seeing in the real estate industry and large platforms that are testing software, which would eventually disintermediate, take the broker or the agent out of the equation for the most part, 
where consumers could self-serve on those platforms. And I'm just like you. I don't think that the auction business is is going to be insulated from that. It, people are going to figure out how to use technology and how to save as much as they can in the divestiture of those assets, which makes it increasingly more important for us to do that much better of a job and to continue to reinvent new technology and new techniques, which are, are going to keep us in this business for a longer period of time. If we don't bring more value to that relationship, if we become, as I have said in conferences and seminars and classes around the country, if we are a commodity, if we can't do a, or provide a value-added service, they're not going to hire us because I can do it myself. And I used the example here the other day in a blog, travel agents. And I know that there are still, I understand that there's still a few travel agencies around and travel agents around. But 20 years ago, every major city had many travel agents that are not there today. Columbus, Ohio, I don't know, and the 14th largest city in the country, I don't know that I can find a travel agent. And here's the other part of that. I don't need to because I have an app. That's an interesting analogy. Trina, have you ever used a travel agent? I've been married for 17 years. I got married in Jamaica. We use a travel agent to arrange our wedding destination and things like that. But I've traveled about three times a year since then, and I've never used another travel agent in my life. Seriously? Yeah, for exactly what he said. I don't have to. I can just go online and book what I want. If somebody's trained us to do that, you know, and we're self-educated. A lot of us will self-educate on the internet through videos There's the webinars, you know, teleconferencing. I mean, there's ways that you can educate electronically. These technology platforms are making it really easy to learn how to use them. To Mike's point, it's going to accelerate that process. Would you agree with that, Mike? I don't think there's any question. And every commercial I see on TV or on the Internet, companies are telling me how they're going to make my life easier. Easier, Mm -hmm. Real estate you mentioned, and you guys have been discussing this, and good thing you have. And there's companies out west that are already experimenting with or putting in place in select markets, essentially for real estate, a click to buy and a click to sell. I told Hmm. folks at the Ohio Auctioneers Association, I did some core law continuing education for them, kicking off their convention here this past weekend. And so we've got almost 70 real estate licensees in the room. And I said, guys, you need to, it's heads up time because if I can buy a house by clicking on it and putting it in my cart on an internet site and settling in 48 hours, getting a seven-day return policy, I move in and within seven days, if I don't like it, I can move back out or change my mind or whatever. I said, none of you are offering that. And when auctioneers sit down, including me, sit down with clients and say, here's how our program works and we can market your home for 30 days or market your farm or market your industrial complex and it's going to take 60 days maybe and and then we'll have the auction and we'll close 45 days later. Uh, Are you kidding me? It takes that long? Nothing in the lives of someone under 30 takes that long. Yeah. It's amazing. Years ago, you know, 30 years ago when I got in this business and you've been doing this uh, almost 40 years the auction method of marketing was the expedited process. And and I believe in most markets, it still is in the grand scheme of transition from buyer to seller, you know, real estate, personal property assets. It's still an expedited way to transfer that property. But what you just said 
is the consumer group, the audience that's growing now and that we're starting to deal with, they're chomping at the bit to even shorten that timeline up as much as they can. Seven days versus 30 days of marketing and sales and, and another 30 days to close. This business has changed a lot. Everybody wants it right now. And I've got a six-year-old granddaughter that clicks on her iPad. And when does she get to see that movie? About a millisecond after she hits the button. She was sitting eating a cheese pizza, as I recall, the other night. And she wanted another pizza. And she's not hard to be around and not terribly demanding otherwise. But she wanted that extra piece, that additional piece of cheese pizza right now. And it kind of took me... Yeah, I, that's, well, darling, I'll, I'll get that. Uh, your grandpa's um, finishing this and I'll go get it. No, she wants it now. Well, of course she wants it now because she's had six years of getting it right now. She hasn't had to wait for anything. Hmm. The auction process, do you see it speeding up in our industry? Do you, you kind of have a feel that we're getting a lot more agile uh, as auctioneers from traditionally the way that we we marketed? You know, we've talked about the the seller side, the consumer side, and and what they want. What about our ability to serve those needs? So 30 years, 40 years ago, before the internet, and everything was paper marketing, newspapers, direct publications, the big old poster boards, the flyers you hung in the coffee shops and the gas stations. And it took a while to get the messaging out and to prep the market for an auction event and to get them driven to that point of a place in time of sale. The technology we have in front of us today, I, I believe it's allowed us to expedite that process to keep up with this this kind of demand. Well, I, I think we're on the right track. And I think a lot of auctioneers have already taken a hard look at their process. Can we do better? I have the immense pleasure of teaching the accredited auctioneer real estate class with uh, Manson Slick, Gordon's Estate Services in Canada. And he tells our group when we teach those classes together, We have something called an accelerated listing, and we put it on the internet day one, and it's closing seven days later. And on the seventh day, the highest bid gets it, or seven days later, at least we have the high bid and the seller can accept or reject. I mean, you can structure it how you want. That compared to a traditional, somewhat traditional method of putting a sign in the yard and having a couple open houses and getting the high bid 30 days later, well, that cuts off three weeks. How does that affect the crowd, like getting that word out? As Sean said it, you know, you have to gather the momentum of the auction in the first place. If you're only giving that seven days, I mean, I guess it brings whatever market it brings. But So take us through that, how how they're able to shorten that timeline up and still get the audience there to buy the property. Well, you you certainly couldn't do it without the internet. So no doubt there's Facebook marketing, there's email blasts, there's past clients of theirs that get a text message maybe or, or you know, the, the internet and having a, a client base and a reputation, certainly, and how long they've been in business there in Canada, people look to them. And how many times has an auctioneer said, oh, they only bid the last 48 hours anyway? Yeah. And so it, do you have to list something on the internet for, for two weeks or three weeks? I mean, we're certainly selling property seven days, internet auctions. We've been doing that a long time. Well, an eBay listing in seven days, I don't see anybody suggesting to make that any longer. We used to be under the premises auctioneers that that 30-day marketing period, there was a little bit of science to it from kind of a four-step process. At least this is how it was taught to me years ago. In that first week, you're announcing that there's going to be an event. You're presenting the property to the market and making an announcement. 
in the second week, people have a chance to see that announcement, make plans, come out and see the property, and begin kind of doing their due diligence and becoming familiar with the property. In the third week, they're finishing that process, and at the same time, they're getting financially ready to purchase that property. This could apply more to a larger purchase, such as real estate or a high-end luxury item, than it would just, you know, a vase or a gun or a collectible. In that fourth week, they come back to the auction and they actually participate. They do, you know, the second round of of checking. They're financially prepared to purchase and they engage in the process and buy the property. We believed it took three to four weeks just for them to kind of self-satisfy do their due diligence, and to become comfortable enough to be a good, knowledgeable participant in that auction over that three- to four-week period. Now I see a lot of properties that are presented to the market, and the auctions are being launched in a 10-day or a 15-day window. But I'm going to assume, Mike, that there's a marketing campaign outside of that that's much longer, that's still notifying the the audience that even though bidding's not open, this property's getting ready to be offered at public sale. Well, there's two there. I suspect you're right in some regards that it's already marketing's already started, although the, the uh, bidding can't take place yet. Of course, we Aaron Traffis and I have discussed numerous times, you know, saying, hey, the restaurant's open, but we haven't unlocked the door yet. Well, we got good food here, but you can't order it yet. Mm-hmm. And people saying, well, wait a minute, if you're going to market it, give me a place to place a bid. You know, don't tempt me with all this marketing and then don't unlock the door. But I suppose in addition to that, there are some, and Manson will tell you, it's in his case, million dollar property and above selling on a seven day type schedule where the marking starts day one and the final bid comes in seven days later. So I think it's possible. And I think sellers are going to demand that you get this done quicker because everything else in their life is quicker. And I think buyers... I think financing takes a shorter amount of time. What's the product I just saw an ad this morning? Rocket mortgage. mortgage. Yeah, rock means fast. I can get financing quick. I'm already looking on my phone at what properties are available. And if you built in some sort of uh, exchange, you know, it's certainly easier on personal property than real estate. But I wouldn't be a bit surprised if down the road people bought real estate in seven days and had a essentially a three-day or a five-day or a 10-day opportunity to rescind the deal. It's funny. I may have felt that way at one time. I find the older that I'm getting, the more I'm trying to slow things down now. (laughs) Right. It's moving too fast, Mike. I don't know that you or I are going to make those kind of demands, but I think the the generation coming up is going to demand, if they want to buy, they want to buy quicker. They don't want to wait. And if they want to sell, they want to sell quicker. They don't want to wait. I think waiting is getting out of style. I can attest to that. I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the opposite of you two. Yeah, Trina. You may not have to make those demands, but you'll have to meet them at some point. She keeps looking at her watch like the podcast show needs to be over with right now. She's in a hurry for everything. You've got somebody here in the room that is time sensitive. So we've we've got a changing demographic. We have a changing client slash customer base. Their demands are changing, and we've got to address that. Here in Columbus, in my hometown, Columbus, Ohio, in 2015, 16, and even 17, and to some degree 18, homes were selling in 24 hours, mm-hmm. 12 hours. The, the joke was just take the sign out in the front yard, stick it in there, and wait. 
and then somebody will make an offer. They'll throw it out a window of a car, and then you take the sign back in. There's no sense making two trips. Just stand there. Well, I show up, and I'm going to market for 30 days. They'll tell me they, they don't need my services. Yeah, they'll find a different provider. Well, the market's already moving yeah. faster than 30 days in that neck of the woods is what you're saying, right? It's it, my, my method, what I was offering them, they had no need for it. I maybe promised them a little more money I could or competitive bidding, uh, a little more fever, but they were choosing quick, even with a little discount. Quicker was better than waiting and getting a little more. And that's the argument auctioneers have been using for decades, centuries, is the auction method of marketing was quicker. Well, the traditional real estate market the last three years or four years in, in all over the U.S. when we got out of the recession, the traditional market was quicker. That's correct. Somebody, I saw a remark on Facebook or somewhere, they said, you know, how are we, how are auctioneers going to fare in the next recession, assuming we've got a recession coming up? And I smiled as I saw some experienced auctioneers say, you know, when times are good, auctioneering is good. When times are bad, auctioneering is great. Because when the traditional market isn't working or property sent there, you know, six months, nine months unsold, well, 30 days sounds pretty good. But when property selling in 24 hours, 30 days sounds aberrant. Yeah, well stated. Well stated. Mike, I want to switch topics here if I can, if you don't care if we switch uh, switch it up just a little bit. The last time Not you and I had a, had a conversation about something that was important to the auction industry, it was Wayfair versus South Dakota, the suit that was going on in, uh, in South Dakota over um, sales tax collection, specifically that would impact the auction industry. Any new updates? I know that you keep your ear to the ground and, and you... You've been uh, one of the guys at the forefront of that. Any updates or, or information on that? Well, fortunately, not a lot has happened. We've got maybe at this point five states, I think, that have passed laws, not surprisingly, that would require products coming into their state to be taxed at the tax rate at the point of destination. Obviously, the concern possibly of an auctioneer listening in here says, well, I, I'm not familiar with this or tell me about it. The, the Wayfair decision allows individual taxing districts, of nearly 10,000 different taxing districts, to collect tax at the point of destination. So auctioneer in Maryland selling a product to somebody in California and shipping it to California, that auctioneer in Maryland would have to collect the tax for the whatever district jurisdiction in California. And in light of there being almost 10,000 taxing districts and those things changing all the time and not being uniform in any regard, it becomes almost unmanageable. So we're waiting, as we discussed, Sean, we're waiting for Congress, the U.S. Congress, to step in and say, hey, we got to put a moratorium on this. We, we have to delay this or we're going to write a law that says all these taxes have to be uniform at the same rate. You know, it would be almost elementary if the rate was just, well, it's 5%. Okay, fine. So you just add 5%, you turn it into the taxing district. That would be more manageable, but we aren't there yet. And Sean, as you pointed out, part of the government or some of the government isn't even open at all now, let alone putting taxes, sales tax at the top of the agenda. So unfortunately, I don't see Congress working on it. And I see more states enacting laws that say we have to collect it. And I don't, neither of those are, are good solutions. 
What happens in the meantime in between those two outcomes? Well, I'd, what, re, what, what is supposed to happen is then the, those auctioneers, as my, my auctioneer here in Maryland that sells that item to somebody in California, he has to, I don't, and again, I'm picking those states. I don't know that yeah. those two states are, or I don't know California, if California is one of those states, but let's pretend they are. Then he or she has to track or find out the tax rate in that particular area at that particular address and charge the appropriate tax. Well, it's, all, it's almost impossible to do. And the alternative is maybe the alternative for some auctioneers, undoubtedly the alternative is I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to collect the tax. And it begs the question, I'm not recommending this solution, but it begs the question, how would that jurisdiction in California know that that item was sold to that person in their jurisdiction? It's not like the buyer goes to the county or township and, hey, by the way, I bought the item and I need to, and he never, I never paid tax. I mean, nobody, nobody does that. Right. Mike, that, that brings up a great question. So in the interim right now, until more people get on board with, you know, obviously they're going to want the tax revenue in the states over time, more and more will will glob onto that. And there's some structured system out there that will support that. Is there an element of law that protects a business owner or an operator like an auctioneer that you could not make an unreasonable request or, or put an unreasonable burden, you know, on, on them. What am I trying to say? They can't, they can't actually tell you how to do it. They just want you to do it. And that to me wouldn't be a reasonable request. Yeah. There's the, the U S Supreme court and courts around the United States, the last say 50 years have used or come to the conclusion that laws can't create an undue burden or, uh, you take the Second Amendment, and the Second Amendment says you can keep and bear arms, except we can restrict it to certain people, or we can require a background check, or we can say you have to be a certain age. Now, the question is, well, wait a minute. The Second Amendment says that. You can't do and the, and the response is, well, but that does not create an undue burden on your right to keep and bear. So the courts use that theory, uh, and not everybody likes that or agrees with that, but that regardless, that's the standard. So, you know, auctioneers could certainly argue, an auctioneer could argue if they came after that auctioneer for not collecting tax, hey, you're creating an undue burden on me and I can't possibly fulfill my obligations here. I don't have the resources. I don't have the time. I don't have the expertise. I, I can't possibly, you're telling me to do something I can't possibly do. The other issue I think auctioneers need to realize is I don't think auctioneers are going to be the driving force on this. I don't think we have enough lobbying, enough money, resources, collective power, and legislatively, to really make any change. Wayfair, for example, does have enough money and influence, or eBay, or Amazon. Those are companies that need to pour their resources into getting a lobbying and get a get a bill passed or a law. You know, create. I, I, you know, I appreciate all the work that folks at NEA have done, and st- even state associations have chipped in and helped. And but, golly sakes, this is a bigger task probably than we can make a difference in. That's exactly the stance that a lot of people that I work with took. It's going to have an impact on on our business, and we'll ultimately have to adjust in the future. But I think it's a fair statement to say that that's probably down the road a ways. 
before we're going to have to modify our systems and start collecting that tax until they can build some infrastructure to tell us how to do that. You we wondered if, if maybe a, a third party and maybe one affiliated with the auction industry would come up with a table or a lookup or a yeah, like lookup or process, yeah. but oh cow, that's that's a job too. Yeah. Put an address and it tells you what the tax bracket is in that address. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, stick the address and it populates it for you. I don't see I I would guess that no software company's working on that because probably those software companies are saying, you know what, we know more than get this thing built. Well, guess what? We can work on that and make a nice little penny on it, huh? Well, three of us. Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) If you caught the second part of what Mike just said, as soon as they get this built, then there's legislation that's passed that said collect, you know, 0.02% on on online sales just across the board for all states. And you no longer need that software. The $1.2 million we spent on that software uh, that nobody needs. (laughs) That sounds like something that I, I would probably invest in. It uh, it's it'll <laughs> be consistent. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be consistent with the rest of the portfolio. Yeah, it looked good at the time, but it didn't. It quite. did look good. It'll be right there with Absolutely. Yahoo and <laughs> MySpace on your you portfolio. Might open, a, <laughs> open a blockbuster. A, movie, <laughs> a blockbuster. Uh, I like that one too. While you're at. Great conversations with Mr. Mike Branley this morning on the Sale Ring Podcast Show. We're going to break away and hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. Thinking about selling a real estate investment, but worried about the taxes you'll have to pay? Property owners just like you have solved their tax issue with a Starker Services 1031 exchange. One call could save you a fortune in taxes. Call Starker Services today at 800-332-1031 or visit online at www.starker.com and keep the tax dollars working for you. Are you looking for heavy equipment but unsure where to start? Then you need to check out AuctionTime.com. Find great equipment has never been easier than bidding online at AuctionTime.com. What are you waiting for? Online auctions are closing every Wednesday. So register and start bidding today. AuctionTime.com, the way to buy heavy equipment. Crude oil, natural gas, coal. Buying and selling minerals is a breeze when you have the right energy professionals on your team. Mineralmarketing.com is a leading resource for America's mineral owners. Whether you're wanting to lease or sell your mineral rights, Mineral Marketing has you covered. Mineralmarketing.com, the oil and gas marketplace. Ever dream of owning a country estate, historic home, or lakefront property? Log on to unitedcountry.com. Would you like to retire to a home built on breathtaking acreage in the mountains? Unitedcountry.com. Ever dream of your own private hunting preserve? UnitedCountry.com. Over 30,000 farm, recreational, and lifestyle properties are just a click away, helping people find their American dream for over 90 years. We will help you find yours. Log on now to UnitedCountry.com and find your freedom. We're back in the studio with Mr. Mike Branley talking about uh, the auction business. Mike's been at it for almost 40 years and Obviously, we're gaining a lot of information from him. Mike, I was reading one of the blogs you had sent out just the other day, which, by the way, for the listeners, 
Mike is a religious blogger about the auction industry. If you like to hear auction blogs, tune into Mike's blog, and, and at the end of this show, we'll we'll tell you how to get there and how to find those. But I was reading one the other day that was really interesting to me because we we all have a tendency to want to promote and, and uh, to try to do the best job for our seller by promoting their property, making representations of what that property could be used for, future values or future potential. What's the liability you can incur with that, Mike? Sean, I teach Ohio real estate classes around the state of Ohio, pre-license, post-license. And one of the things we always mention to those prospective and or current real estate licensees is don't guarantee or warranty future values. So for example, I'm listing a property and he says, well, you know, it's an income producing property. It's got a cap rate of this or what have you. And okay, well, yeah, you're going to make 5% on this every year for the next 10 years because it's been earning 5% every year prior or something. And we stress to those real estate licensees, while you can talk about what it's been doing, don't guarantee or warranty what it will do because the obvious, hopefully obvious problem there is what if it doesn't? And you made that warranty or guarantee. So it could be that you can walk to the park. I think I use that example in the blog. Uh, there's a state park nearby. You can buy this property and walk to a state park. Well, one, walking, disability, fair housing, that's a little risky uh, language to start with. Secondly, what if that state park isn't there? or closes up, or there's a government shutdown. Imagine that. So you want to talk about the, what the property has done, but you want to stay away from telling those buyers what the property will do or what you can do with it, because you don't know that. We don't know the future. We just have the history on it. It's a sad state of affairs, what we have boxed ourselves into as a society out there from litigation and overreaching, misrepresenting what your actual intent was when you purchased the property. Obviously, you're looking for for something extra in addition that may not be fair, you know, in a lot of cases, but people are becoming less and less concerned about uh, what's fair and, and what they can get away with. And, and that's sad for our society. It is sad. And I've got some good news here. Those selling personal property and lower dollar personal property, there's not a lot of litigation about a, uh, a box of tools or uh, a pottery vase. Not a lot. I'm, I didn't say none, but not a lot. Because you can't afford to sue when the dollars are low. The issue with real property is when you get up into the millions of dollars or tens of millions or hundreds of millions, people get emotional, people get serious, and those participants in those events, both buyers and sellers, typically have a lot of money. And they'll sue almost as a recreational activity. I had a guy that had made billions of dollars, not mentioning obviously any names or the case, but had told me where I, I had supplied just testimony about the auction industry had nothing to do with the property that we had listed or had sold personally. He didn't care. He was out in the lobby and he, he said, I, I don't care if I win or lose this. I have the money and I'm just trying to prove a point. And I thought this would be a good public way to do that. And that's not what the court system's intended for. Unfortunately, that well, is how not. it's being utilized. It's a shame. And that's not the design of it. But when you get up in that kind of money, as you just said, you have people that use it for that. And now, now 
we have people in those types of uh, monetary stages of life that actually have damages, and I understand that. So you can be damaged by millions of dollars or billions of dollars, and, and then the court is the right place for that. But just to sue to make the other guy hurt, and, and most courts are sensitive to if there's not any damages, we don't need to hear from you. You know, there almost has to be some damage to, to sue somebody. You, if you're not harmed, if there's no harm, what's the lawsuit about? Mike, one of the things that I appreciate about about you and about your blogs is, and for our listeners, Mike is one of the foremost auction expert witness testimony authorities in the U.S. He's sought after by a lot of legal firms to attest to what's prominent and what is proper in the auction industry. What are common practices for auction companies, uh, which they will obviously position their cases in and around. And uh, sometimes you're working for either side in those. But as you put the blog out there publicly, it's based on experience and it's based on things that you're seeing that are transpiring in our U.S. court system across the country. So it's not just personal feelings and and emotions when you're writing the blog. It's based on case studies. And I, that's one of the things I've always appreciated about reading your blogs. Well, I, I, thank you. And, and as you mentioned earlier, I can't always or don't mention the particular names or the particular court if it's something I've been involved in. Oftentimes, I can't mention that, but I can talk about the principle behind it. And if it keeps an auctioneer out of court or it, or it uh, keeps the lawsuit from happening or the auctioneer can take steps to avoid that same situation, well, I should be telling people about that and my fellow auctioneers about that. And along those lines, you may be curious what two things uh, come to immediately to mind that are almost always at the center of these types of lawsuits. And one is the age-old problem of taking bids that aren't there. And you want to, you know, I, I get it, I understand it, but if you've got somebody standing there with billions of dollars and you take a bid off the light switch and go back to him or her and say, I, I need another bid, and they sense that you're, you're taking bids that aren't there, illegit- you know, fictitious bids, if you will. I wouldn't want to be the auctioneer doing that because that gets these people excited and not in a good way. The other issue that we see oftentimes involves the as-is standard. And I I did write a blog. There was a case over Kurt Bachman's, an attorney in Indiana, and brought it up. It's in the uh, National Auctioneer Association magazine, the Auctioneer magazine. He didn't mention the case, but I got the case, and I published it and mentioned Kurt's name. I said, Kurt wrote about this, and, and we need to pay attention here. On the one hand, you're saying, he's on it. And on the other hand, you're describing it. You're saying it's a it's a Marantz 2235B stereo, and it works perfectly, and it's got a new cord and all that. But you can't rely on what I just told you. Well, the court in Indiana said that this seems to be an irreconcilable conflict. The U.S. District Court. On the one hand, you're saying it's as is, no warranties, no guarantees. And on the other hand, you're telling me exactly what it is. But I'm not. But I can't believe anything you say. How do we resolve that? And I yeah. think that I think auctioneers are going to have to be careful. And Kurt points out, and I think a good good advice for the auction community is always give some sort of reasonable, open inspection opportunity, and maybe kind of bend over backwards to make sure everybody has what they feel is a reasonable or fair opportunity to preview, inspect, 
you know, pick up the item, look at it, get questions answered, email another photo to them if they want another photo, answer their email. The more inspection buyers have, the more they'll understand, okay, I'm buying it as is. But if I don't have the chance to inspect it, I don't know what I don't know what it is. I don't know what as is is because I didn't have a chance to see it. Well, that makes that makes perfect sense. You know, while you were uh, while you were talking, one of the things that Trina jotted down in here is, you know, how you have to give the inspection period, but you also have to give at least some notice of what you're selling publicly in the marketing and the advertising. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, how do you rectify it? How do you, as an auctioneer, how do you advertise that radio that works today, but you're not making any warranty behind it? Let's say like it's a well, brick home. How do you advertise a brick home at auction? Well, what can you say about it? Well, as, as, as really the line needs to, or seems to be, as long as you're being genuine and fair and reasonable and honest about your assessment, we're probably on the winning side. The, the problem is, and, and I hate to say it, but there are auctioneers that, that take advantage of the as-is standard mm-hmm. by seemingly telling themselves, well, now that I'm selling it as is, I can lie about the house or the property or the acreage or the, you know, whatever, the Morant stereo. I can lie about it because they can't, but I'm telling them, because I'm telling them they can't rely on what I'm saying anyway. Well, now that seems to me we've crossed the line there. Now you're not using as is for its intended purpose. That makes a lot of sense. You know, as an auctioneer for the past 30 years, I, I obviously I've written uh, auction advertising many, many times. And when you're selling something as is, where is, it's important to, and, and this is my perspective, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, it's important to note what you're aware of and what you know about the property, positive or uh, potentially negative, without lying about the property. Just state the facts and then let them make their own observation. That's it. That's it. What you know or what you should know and and disclose that and and take a take some steps, appropriate steps to research a little bit. So, you know, the seller says we had a case over in Indiana, uh, speaking of Indiana again, where uh, the attorney called me and said, of all things, uh, this auctioneer is selling 160 acres plus or minus. And I said, OK, I think I know what's coming, but go ahead. And he said the uh, buyer bought it and gets over there, and there's 80 acres. So he oh, said, wow. my question for That's you a big minus. is, is 80 plus or minus 160? And my response was, no. No, it's not. 100, 159 or 157 or 163 is plus or minus, but you can't use plus or minus. And obviously, this auctioneer either intended to misrepresent it. I don't think so, however or just wasn't prudent in doing some research. If the seller told him there was 160 acres, that's what he advertised. And he didn't bother to check public records or what have you. So I think, Sean, as you said, tell what you know about it. Be fair and honest and upfront about it. Not hide anything. But secondly, do a little research and check what the seller's reporting or telling you, because that's not always exactly, not every seller knows what they have. Not every seller necessarily is honest. And so you gotta you gotta verify, I guess, check and verify that information before it's published. That's great advice, great information from a great man, Mike Brandley. And I'm hoping 
we can continue this. I mean, now we're getting into um, puffing. If if you're familiar, you're familiar with that. But if our audience is familiar with that and and what that means in marketing and inflating, and I'd love to finish this on another series of, of the uh, the podcast show. If you would uh, come back, absolutely, Sean, absolutely. We appreciate you being in the studio with Trina and I, Mr. Mike Branley, Branley and Associates out of Ohio's a 40-year veteran in the auction industry. And Mike, how can they find you? I, I want our, our listeners to be able to find your blog and to be able to interact with you. How will they find Mike Branley? Well, I appreciate that, Sean. The blog is my name, auctioneer.wordpress.com. So I'll go through it. Mike Brandley Auctioneer.wordpress.com. And one way to get that blog published article in your email box when I hit publish is to subscribe. And if you have not subscribed, there's a place there on the blog to type in your email address and subscribe. So I invite those that uh, would be interested to take advantage of that. My phone number, my cell phone, you can text or call 614-461-9229. And I don't mind that at all. I get calls from auctioneers, uh, uh, probably six, eight a week, I would guess, that say, hey, I got a question or I just want to run this by you or whatever, and I'm glad to help in that regard as well. Mike, you're always so generous with your thoughts, your insights, and your time. We appreciate you being on the podcast show. On behalf of Trina Turner and myself, thank you very much. My dear Trina, pleasure talking with you as well. You too, Mike. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this episode of the Sale Ring podcast show. Join us next time as we have a guest inside the Sale Ring. This episode has ended, but your journey to greatness continues. To access all resources and links mentioned in today's show, head over to www.thesalering.com now. That's www.thesalering.com.